Welcome to On Farm Trials with the PNW Farmers Network, where we explore the many trials that come along with cropping systems innovation in the inland Pacific Northwest. Plenty of questions get asked while farming across this region, and together, we're digging into what it's like to try to answer some of them as producers, researchers, and the many other professionals in the field that get things done. We're glad you're here. I'm your host, Carol McFarland. Today, we're visiting the Holland Boone Farm, uh, just outside of Palouse, Washington, with Mr. Moses Boone. So glad to be with you today. Thanks for having me on your farm, and really looking forward to the conversation. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here, Carol. Great. Would you um, share a little bit about yourself, your farm, who you farm with? Sure. Um, My name's Moses Boone. I'm a fifth-generation family farmer. I farm here with my dad. It's kind of uh, me and my parents uh, run the farm in about a 20-inch rainfall zone, so we're uh, mainly growing wheat, barley, lentils, and chickpeas. and what I have um, kind of set as my goals for the farm are to try to figure out a way to um, consistently and um, uh, reliably uh, eliminate tillage. It's something that uh, my dad has been uh, trying to do. He's, he's uh, an early adopter of no-till, but there's always been um, uh, issues where, you know, it, it seems like the only way we can fix it is to break out the plow every once in a while. So, you know, he's been trying to do that since the eighties. And, um, you know, I, I, I think there's a way to do it, but, um, as I'm sure we're going to talk about, I think it's going to take a little more experimenting to, uh, to figure out how, how at least farmers in this area can finally get there. Yes, we're definitely all about experimenting. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's great. Well, um, if you want to describe a little bit more about um, your moisture, but maybe also a little bit about um, your soil conditions and um, how many combines do you run? (laughs) Okay. Uh, We're mainly um, like, uh, you know, loam type soils. We have clay loam. We have uh, silt loam uh, soils. Um, we, run, we run two combines. Uh, I like that just to be one, <laughs> one bigger one. Uh, but uh, uh, maybe in, in a year or two we'll be there. Um, the standard uh, crop rotations in this area, um, I guess they're, they're changing a little bit now. A lot more people are starting to grow canola. But um, traditional crop rotations... Uh, there's kind of two main ones. There's a three-year um, rotation that's winter wheat, and then a spring grain, either either spring wheat or barley or pulse crop. You know, usually chickpeas or lentils, uh, sometimes dry peas. And um, the other rotation, the two-year rotation, would be just winter wheat and then that pulse crop. And I kind of do a blend of the two. I do basically the three-year rotation and then the two-year rotation after that, so it's it's five years overall, and um, uh, that allows us to use. Uh, we have more options to use the different herbicides in the three-year rotation, um, but our biggest struggle with uh, 
with no-till is no-tilling the spring grain crop. So um, by doing that three-year and two-year back-to-back, we only have one spring grain crop every five years. So it sort of it, it mitigates the problem, and uh, every once in a while we'll get lucky and, and we'll feel like we can we can uh, no-till our, our barley or our spring grain. But uh, so far we're, we're still doing a little bit of, of tillage every once in a while. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit more about some of the conditions that have allowed you to skip that tillage path for your spring crop? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, with with the um, the lentils and the chickpeas, uh, we no-tilled all of those this year. And um, one things that one of the things that helps with those is um, they're we seed them after the spring grains, so. It's a little bit later in the spring. The grounds had more time to warm up and dry out, so uh, so that helps it with with being able to get the equipment over the ground without getting stuck. And you know, just in general, seeds don't like being in cold soil. They don't like being planted in mud. Uh, they don't grow well when the ground is saturated. So just just by virtue of being planted a little bit later. Um, that helps. I would say for the last several years we've we've no-tilled all of our our pulse crops. Um, it's just the the spring grains that are that are still the issue. When we have been able to no-till those, it's sort of uh, um, it's usually because the previous year's winter wheat crop wasn't very good. <laughs> so mm. uh, so there's just there's not uh, too much residue out there. Um, those farming trade-offs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's 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 sort of like, well, we don't have to till, but we, we kind of wish we did <laughs> in yeah. those years. Um, but yeah, the the spring grains in this area yield dependent on seeding date. The time between when you seed and when things kind of dry out in the summer and the plants don't have enough moisture to grow anymore, that window is just so short in this area. And I think most farmers around here would agree that um, it, it seems like the rule of thumb is every day that you delay seeding is going to cost you a bushel per acre at, at harvest time. So depending on the size of your farm, if, it, if it's going to take you a week or two weeks to get all your seeding done and you delay the start just by one day, translates to a huge yield loss across your, your whole farm. And we've had... Um, different experiments that we've done out here with with uh, dealing with the crop residue and sometimes they work they work backwards we had one where uh, after harvest we went back out with the combine and we we recut all of our stubble really short and ran it through the combine and and spread it out over the field because we had we had a lot of crop residue and that turned out to be just a disaster there's you know, like a two-inch thick layer of mulch on the surface that was just keeping uh, all the moisture in and keeping the sun off of the soil. We seeded our our spring grain crop about six weeks later than our conventional neighbors. So that, you know, stuff like that's just not not sustainable. In many contexts, and at least in some of these dry land areas, um, you know, being able to keep the moisture in the soil mm-hmm. and having the soil covered is very good yeah. for the conditions until mm-hmm. you want to seed into them. We're starting to talk about this a little. Um, I'm interested to know, as you're trying some of these different things, what do you what do you look for 
um, in your trials. So, so if you want to describe a couple things that you have going on right now or mm -hmm. any favorite, um, Mm -hmm. trials that you have going on out there um, at this point, um, and then what, what you look at through the season. Yeah, so, you know, it, there's, there's a lot of things we could potentially measure and, and things that, that I'm sure we would be measuring if this was, you know, a research farm and an, and an academic setting. As a working farm, kind of the only thing that, that we're really looking at is, is the bottom line, because you know, we can, there, there's so many things that I'd, I'd like to do for the sake of soil health. And there's so many things that, that we could do. Um, but if it's not, uh, financially sustainable, you know, all of that is, is for nothing really, because I, you know, someone listening to this might, might think, oh, you're just, you're just being greedy. But, you know, if we go broke trying to improve the soil health, whoever comes and farms this ground next isn't going to do the same thing. You know, I think it's, it's incumbent on um, a, a farmer who, who cares about, um, about their ground to find a way to do it, you know, not just environmentally sustainably, but economically sustainably too, because, uh, you know, otherwise the next person is going to come in here and just, uh, just undo all, all the good that, that we did and, and uh, we could just save ourselves a lot of time and, <laughs> and then sold out before we went broke. So. Yeah, it doesn't help anyone <laughs> no, to go broke. No, so, so, um, so that's the main thing uh, that we look at. Um, and uh, the other thing that we look at is, you know, we just kind of watch the field, see how it looks, you know, uh, over the course of the year, um, which um, is actually a bit of a pitfall, I think, for for anyone who's getting into no-till or conservation agriculture because, um, <laughs> and even though my dad's been doing this since the 80s, he, he still deals, we were talking about it this morning, he's like, man, I feel the lentils, it doesn't look very good. And I had to say, it's, it's no-till, it's not going to look good. <laughs> the, those, when you have all that crop residue out in the field, it never is going to look as good, at least in the early stages, as uh, a conventionally farmed field. So it sounds like watching your no-till lentils is a bit like the stock market, where you just shouldn't look too close on any given day, <laughs> but it's really about the end outcome. Yeah, yeah. As as long as uh, <laughs> as long as there's still something there in the account, it's time to retire. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, it's well, you know, the conventional farmed ground um, where where you've done your tillage and you know you've worked up the soil there's no crop residue you've smoothed everything out you know the soil's nice and and black or, or dark brown looking and um, so one you can have a lot more uniform planting depth with your seed when there's no residue on top. When, when there's a bunch of residue on top, it's never uniform. It varies from place to place, and that affects your, your um, seeding depth from place to place. And so when you have a lot of crop residue, usually your emergence isn't uniform. You know, it doesn't, you know, some, some of the seeds need a little longer to come out before the other ones, whereas conventional ground, it seems like, you know, overnight, just everything pops up out of the ground. And when it does, you have these nice bright green shoots against this dark 
uh, background of the soil, so there's high contrast and it's easy to see. It looks really satisfying. It, it looks out really, there in really the field. satisfying. The neighbors yeah. like to see that too. <laughs> yeah, everybody likes to see it. Whereas, uh, you know, the conservation, the no-till stuff with a lot of crop residue, a lot of the times the crop residue is still taller than the crop that you're growing for, you know, several weeks or even, you know, a month or more. So when you look out from a distance, you don't see all the plants, you just see the residue, unless you're standing. You know, right above the plant, looking straight down, you might not see it. We had um, we had an experiment a few years ago where we split a field in half, and and you know half we tilled, the other half got uh, a cover crop planted. Excuse me, planted in the fall, and then we terminated the cover crop and planted a spring crop. And th that um, conservation side, it it looked like a crop failure. It looked like there was going to be nothing there, especially compared to the conventional side, which, yeah, just nice bright green. And on the conventional side, um, especially from the road, even the weeds contribute to it looking good because the weeds are green too. So <laughs> you see you see all the, the green out there and you think, wow, that's great. Um, uh, but then at harvest time, there was there was a slight difference. The, the conservation side was was down on yield, but not by much. We we were expecting half a crop, and it was it was down maybe ten percent. So you know you you really have to be you have to kind of put the blinders on and just uh, just ignore some of that stuff because we could have you know a few weeks into it when there was no emergence we could have decided you know we're going to take it all out and just leave that ground fallow. You know, this was a failure, but it was, it was a good thing we saw it through to, um, to completion because even though the yield was down a little bit on the conservation side, all that crop residue kept the grassy weeds at bay and we didn't have to spray for grassy weeds on, on that side of the field and that savings made up for the difference in yield. And so we made the same amount of money on both sides but on the conservation side, I saved myself a trip with the sprayer, and I would, I would definitely rather not be spraying. <laughs> That's a perfect segue into um, how you evaluate the return on investment mm -hmm. on a new practice. And, mm -hmm. and one of the things that um, I also want to emphasize, so um, not just the dollar return on investment, are there other parts of your management goals on your farm that you're, mm -hmm. you're looking at when, when you're really looking at at the ROI on our practice. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the the non-financial side, you know, that's, like I said, my main focus has been trying to eliminate those tillage operations for the sake of, of soil health. I and mean, there's there's just so much evidence now that, that even just minor amounts of tillage, you know, just a, a light pass with the harrow or, or, or things like that, um, continually degrade the soil much faster than it's it's built up and in the Palouse region we have a lot of of topsoil unless you're on a hilltop <laughs> yeah yeah people have been able to get away with kind of um damaging practices for a very long time and it's i think for some of them it's given them the impression that they'll just be able to keep doing this forever because you know they're also fourth and fifth generation farmers and and they've been been doing it for so long. Like, you know, what's the problem? 
but um, any place that <laughs> where there's an area that's been farmed right next to an area that hasn't been farmed, you can see the difference in elevation. You can see that that soil's been eroded and it's you know it's wash it's blowing away and it's washing down the streams. You know, I could just go about doing business as usual and leave the problem for <laughs> for the next person, but you know, I I I believe that waste is just inherently wrong. You can achieve your objectives without being wasteful. That's always that's always a better option. So so that's that's the main main thing I I that keeps me up at night is trying to figure out how how we can do that. The financial ROI um, before I was a farmer, I worked for an electronics manufacturer. I was a process engineer, and one of my jobs was specking out new equipment and designing new new processes. and And the management always wanted to see, you know, okay, what's what's going to be the return on investment for this? And um, at at that particular company, what they wanted to see was a return on investment of one year or less, and then they give the green light to the project, and <laughs> here on the farm, that's that's kind of laughable. You know, we we look at our return on investment. If we can get it within a decade, we feel like we've done <laughs> a great job. You know, um, especially e even something like like purchasing farmland right now. The prices are are so out of line with what. Um, what might be considered uh, financially viable for a farmer, um, you know, the return on investment for a farmer for farm ground who's who's not a speculator, who's not planning to you know turn around and sell it for a profit in a few years. If you're only making money by farming, that could be thirty, forty, fifty years. So we're really looking at really long time frames for our return on investment. Mainly, we're you know, when I'm when I'm doing these experiments, I'm I'm mainly looking for that that aspect of getting me closer to conservation agriculture and not losing money. You know, if if it just breaks even, but it achieves those other conservation goals, then then I'm happy. And protecting that long term capital investment yeah. too. Yeah. What is the most interesting thing you've learned from a past trial? Mm hmm Well, I, I think that that past trial uh, that I I talked about, where we split the field in half, and um, uh, the cover crop side had the uh, had the weed suppression benefit. I was really surprised by that because I I uh, done a lot of uh, research on on cover crops, and um, you know heard people talk about all the the reported benefits of it and when they would say you know well you're not going to need to spray for weeds as much I thought I, I would just roll my eyes I thought that was <laughs> that was ridiculous you know um, I, I really didn't expect that uh, it could make it could make that much a difference if it did make a difference I I thought that there would still be enough weeds in the field that I would still have to go out and spray. I thought maybe there'd be some suppression, but not not true control. And so that was that was really surprising. What what I was trying to achieve with growing the cover crops was to have some living plants there to take some moisture out of the soil 
through transpiration so that we could get out and we could see sooner. Uh, my father had mentioned to me once uh, when we had a, uh, a field that had been in winter wheat the year before, and we had a lot of volunteer wheat growing in the field, and he said, you know, you better get out there and, and spray that because I've had this issue where there's a lot of volunteer wheat growing. Um, it'll use up so much moisture out of the soil that when you go and plant your spring crop, you won't be putting the seed into moisture you'll be putting it into dry ground and it won't it won't grow unless we get a rain and i thought wait a minute we <laughs> we can't no-till early enough because the ground's too wet but here with you've had this problem of of plants growing in the field and and drying out the field too much like let's let's you know turn this bug into a feature you know <laughs> and uh so I was hoping that that would happen, but the, the trouble with cover crops in our area when they're planted in the fall, they just they just don't get enough moisture early. You know, some summer rains, some regular summer rains would really solve a lot of our <laughs> our problems around here. As it turns yeah. out, like those amazing <laughs> Midwest growers that are growing all that cover crop yeah. biomass. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the the plants are just. The cover crop was really small going into winter and just didn't have much time to get very big. And even by the time we had to terminate it in, in the spring before spring planting, it, there was hardly any biomass from, from the cover crop itself. You know, most of the biomass was just the crop residue from, from the previous year's crop. So uh, it, it didn't work at all to, to help dry the, the ground out. And I, I repeated that um experiment with the cover crop um a few more years to see if you know maybe it was just a year or something like that and i tried different different blends uh, different uh, uh uh different species of, of plants and yeah nothing really really seemed to do the trick on that front but but it was it was interesting to see that some of these these claims about different conservation practices that seem like they're too good to be true. You know, some of them are, but but some of them aren't. Some of them some of them really do do work. That's great. Um I would love to hear a little bit more. Like especially when you did notice a a difference in in your weed your grassy weeds mm -hmm. you were describing. Um mm -hmm. what was that cover crop mix? Did it matter? I'm not sure that the the mix mattered. It 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 may have. Um I think the main uh, thing that contributed to the suppression was the crop residue from the previous year. Um, there, there was quite a bit of, of straw out there. Um, the mix that I planted was um, uh, triticale, uh, a daikon radish, a turnip, and winter peas. And you know, by the spring, but when we went through and, and terminated the cover crop prior to planting, there wasn't really anything except triticale, it, it seemed like. The, there, you know, there were a few winter peas, they weren't very big, and you know, the radish and the turnip, I didn't, didn't really see any of those. We saw some later. There were some, some seeds that you know, didn't germinate, or the plants weren't growing, or, or they didn't get... Uh, uh, 
killed when we when we sprayed prior to planting. So we had a few sporadic uh, radishes here or there, and uh, at harvest time, and and that was kind of kind of interesting. Um, and I know that some plants can have sort of a heliopathic effect where they're they're suppressing other plants from growing. So maybe they're maybe the turnips or or the radishes were were contributing to that, but I don't I'm, I wouldn't know for sure. I think it was mainly just the fact that the grassy weeds, because we had plenty of broadleaf <laughs> weeds in that field, but you know the grassy weeds it, it tend to have very small seeds that need to be close to the surface, and those small seeds don't have a lot of energy in them. They they can't push through a whole lot of soil or crop residue. So if you have enough crop residue on the surface, I think you know, the seeds germinate, but they just can't get can't get out of it. So are you still growing cover crops now? We haven't um, we haven't uh, continued with that. The the cover crop. Um, uh, the weed suppression it uh, it paid for the yield loss compared to the conventional side, um, but it didn't cover the cost of the seed itself. And so, a cover crop seed it tends to be at, at least for us fairly expensive because it's sort of more of a specialty thing. There's you know there's uh, not many suppliers, and they get it in small quantities, so we probably don't have the economies of scale that we need. I think if we were going to do it, um, if we were going to do it consistently, we'd probably want to be producing our own cover crop seed, and and we don't have the home storage facilities that we need for that anyway. So uh, for the time being, we've uh, we've stopped uh, growing cover crops, but it's not something that um, that I've given up on on entirely i might be willing to <laughs> to revisit it well i i think it's really great that you also made sure to try it over a few different years mm-hmm. because one of the you know best practices for experimentation mm-hmm. um is representing a practice over both space and time mm-hmm. so um it sounds like you know you did half a field and then you mm-hmm. had a, a comparison so some great best practices mm-hmm. in in that context um so I'd love to hear a little bit more about um, something you'd like to try but can't because of um, some sort of limitation right now, mm-hmm. um, whether that's equipment, precipitation, uh, lease agreement, that sort of thing. Oh, sure. Um, the, the biggest limitation is <laughs> is always money. It's it's hard uh, it's hard to do a lot of these things that I'd like to try, and I I come up with so many crazy ideas. It's a, it's a good thing I have my father here to bounce ideas off of. Um, you know, sometimes I think he's just being too uh, old-fashioned when he says uh, we better not try that. But m- usually with hindsight, I'm like, yeah, that was a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. That's why you try things. Yeah, small scale. Small it's, it's hard, though, when, when things you want to try require equipment. Mm, that's you fair. know, and and that seems to be where my mind usually goes is to equipment. Um, it's like you're a mechanical engineer. Yeah, yes, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the the one thing I'd really like to try because I I I think it has a good chance of of working. It's just the the logistics are are really difficult, at least with the equipment that that we have available, um, and with our topology around here. 
with with all the hills. Um, instead of monocropping an entire field, um, I I think it'd be interesting to try growing different crops in strips through the field. So strips that are you know the width of your your uh, seed drill and your combine header. So just just one pass with the drill and you know with a combine uh, that's sized to match. That's another issue for us right now that our drill is different size than our combine header. Um, but instead of you know that five-year rotation that I, I described, instead of rotating fields, you just rotate strips within the field. And the idea there would be that after we harvest all of our crops and we're planting our, after we've planted our, our winter wheat, so, so on, on our legume ground, on where we grow lentils or chickpeas, uh, the year after that would always be uh, uh, fall wheat. So we go through and plant our fall wheat on those strips, and then where we had just harvested our winter wheat and have all of that heavy residue to cut that residue and transfer it on top of the winter wheat ground. And that way, you know, the winter wheat has time to grow through all that residue and um, basically it would clear the, all the ground that we have to plant in the spring. So we wouldn't be planting through any residue or any heavy residue, there'd just be a small amount of stubble. All of that crop residue that we normally are fighting in the spring it would have already been, it, it would be transferred over to the ground that we planted in the fall. So that would allow that uh, the spring planted strips to you know, have time to warm up and dry out more in, in the spring. We've experimented with uh, having the straw baled and hauled away. So we actually did that for, for a few years and um, it, it helped with our our um, uh, our goals of, of spring no-till. It wasn't it wasn't a silver bullet because uh, we weren't windrowing with the combine. They were coming through with swathers later, and and gathering things up. So the combine still spread out a lot of residue that didn't get picked up. But but it it reduced the amount of residue that we had to fight through. Um, but losing all that organic matter not good for the soil and I, I think was accelerating our our pH problems so um, even though it was even though it was is helping in one area I I was worried about the long-term consequences and so I decided that that we shouldn't be be doing that anymore but if we could instead of hauling it away and hauling it off of the field if we could just move it to a different part of the field I think that that might work. I'm, I'm sure where everything's flat, it'd be real easy to grow everything in strips like that. It's, it's really hard around here. We don't have any flat or square fields. Um, uh, another thing that, that would be similar would just be taking all the residue and maybe just putting it on, on top of the hill, <laughs> you know, leaving it up there, grow your spring, spring crop, and then, then come back and, and spread it out over the field later after it's had time to, to decompose. That might be another thing but again all the equipment that you need to to move that residue from from place to place it's um it's uh it's hard to figure out you know 
it might be worth the investment if we knew for sure that it was going to work, but it's it's really hard to justify it for for just an experiment. Yeah, it definitely sounds like there's some very real engineering uh-huh. mechanical <laughs> barriers there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's great to um, I'll, I'll soil science just for a moment here, but yeah, <laughs> yeah please. I, I mean, absolutely. You're talking about the value of the residue, and you really mm-hmm. notice that there's when you export your residue um, off of out of your system, um, you know, it actually not only can accelerate soil acidification because you're exporting base cations Mm -hmm. that are also essential plant nutrients. You're Mm -hmm. also exporting more potassium and phosphorus. And so, which are ultimately things you have to pay to put back into the system. Mm -hmm. So, Mm -hmm. um, the carbon is really important, but also there's all those other nutrients that you put into the plants in the first place. And so then to, to remove more than you have to, um, ends up meaning that you have to put more back into your system, which typically there's a dollar sign associated yeah. with that. What a fun way to to think about solving that problem and um, especially maybe moving that up the hills where it can be really useful mm-hmm. in restoring some of the hilltops um, and increasing carbon up mm-hmm. there. So thanks so much for yeah. sharing that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's the biggest barrier to trying new things on your farm? I think maybe we started talking a little bit about yeah, that, but yeah, feel free it, to expand. It, yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the money issue because um, there's, yeah, the, it, usually trying something new, it, it might mean more equipment, but at, at the very least, you know, for us, um, it, it usually means different equipment, even if it's not not additional equipment so you know and then you're talking about upgrading and so that gets expensive about the only thing that you can really try uh for free sort of for free is you can um uh, experiment with your rotation a little bit but even that's not really free because there's a reason that the traditional rotations that we grow around here are the traditional rotations. It's be, it's not because nobody's tried anything else. It's because they've tried everything else, and this is what usually works the best. So it's um, it's it's not really free to uh, to deviate from from that plan either. Yeah, that's really insightful. Um, I know we did um, an on-farm experimentation workshop this uh, winter, this last winter, and one of the ways that we kind of tried to break it out a little bit too in different types of trials is products versus processes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it sounds like crop rotation, I would categorize that as a process versus, mm-hmm. you know, oh, this is a fungicide trial or something yeah. like that. It's more of a product. Yeah. Um, I get yeah. You know, the, another thing uh, aside from the baling that that we've done to um, to control our crop residue, and this is something that again it even it's even it works even better than than the baling, and that's burning. Uh, There's also, rules against that. I think <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, that, that, there. Yes, yes, uh, uh, probably for a good reason because that's the other thing where. Um, you know, in, in talking with my father, he says, you know, the, the one thing that I did I, that, you know, he quit doing it too, but that he did that was pretty much a surefire way to no-till those spring grains was to, to burn the crop residue. So um, I, it's hard to say 
what's worse, <laughs> burning or tillage. I guess they're just bad in different ways, but those trade-offs, though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think that that's a theme of it, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. How do we evaluate those yeah, trade-offs? Exactly. Um, okay, if you could change one thing about ag right now, what would it be? Oh man, uh, I I think one thing that's that's really difficult for farmers is we don't have the ability to control our our input costs or the cost of our final goods. Um, at, at least not, you know, farmers who grow commodity crops uh, like okay. we do. You know, and it's kind of crazy. You know, in most other businesses, when you produce something, you get to decide how much you're going to sell it for. For <laughs> farmers, you know, we're trading on the open market, so we don't get to say, I want $9 for this bushel of wheat. We can either sell for whatever the market's offering or not sell, and you know, that's our only option. And uh, you know, maybe there's some huge farmers out there that have some kind of price leverage on on either their input costs or uh, the cost of their products. But I, I think most farmers don't. We certainly don't. And so that's that's really really troubling. And 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 you know, another thing. I I know you said one thing, but <laughs> I'm going to say another thing. Uh, I I don't think the um, the actual cost of um, our agricultural products are reflected in the price of the products right now. Because I know nobody wants their food to be more expensive, and and you know, inflation is a huge problem that's that's affecting everybody, and the price of everything's going way up. But I don't. It, you know, as expensive as food is now, I still don't think the true cost of what we're producing is actually in the price. You know, because so much of our food is still produced with these destructive practices, and um, you know, we're we're sort of just just transferring the cost to the future. We're we're sort of subsidizing the cost of our food right now at at the expense of the future, and and those costs are going to come back eventually and you know if the if the true cost was was in the price then i think farmers could afford to um uh, practice more more conservation and more more sustainable practices yeah <laughs> the all soil of, scientist agrees <laughs> all of that thank you so much for sharing um those insights, because I think it is really meaningful. Um, it does seem like there are some growers um, around that get a bit creative with their marketing, mm -hmm. and um, but there isn't necessarily the infrastructure regionally to do a lot of direct marketing, and, and farmers are already responsible for so much in just the production side of things that going into marketing is just a whole, and more vertical <laughs> integration and yeah. shortened supply chains and all of that. I mean, to put that burden on the farmers... Um, it's a pretty big one. And so, um, but thanks for sharing all of that because you do get into things like economics and policy and ecosystem service valuation are all things that kind of fly around the scientific community and you can't manage what you can't measure. So some of the work that we do at the university level is definitely an effort to try to capture that and maybe at some point that can be um, a benefit that is passed along for both farmers and consumers in yeah. the long run. It's easy for me to say I don't think the real cost is reflected in the price, but yeah, 
I have no idea what the real cost is. It's a really, really difficult question to answer. And um, yeah, I, I, I don't even know how you, <laughs> you try to figure that out. <laughs> There's a lot of moving parts yeah. in the agroecosystem. <laughs> yeah. and, and I do think that that is part of our work as scientists is to try to help figure that out and um, put some of those puzzle pieces together. So, and again, especially in the applied ag space, is try to do that for the benefit of, of this agroecosystem so that um, kind of everybody wins. Mm -hmm. um, so what is one thing you could, you wish you could change about the public's understanding of agriculture? Well, I, I think there's, um, you know, there's not a good understanding of, um, you know, I talked a lot about tillage, but I, I don't think there's really any, any perception amongst the general public about um, about how bad that really is, you know, for for the environment. It's it's when you're talking about burning crop residue, that's easy for everyone to see. You know, it's this big dramatic event. Um, when you're talking about tillage practices that that maybe erode a tenth of an inch of soil per year, it's it's hard to to get a lot of people really excited about that. Um, but if you think about the long-term consequences, like, you know, food is, is the ultimate energy resource. And if we deplete our ability to produce that resource, then, you know, there's, there's going to be a lot of conflicts in the future that are, that are fought over that, that resource. We need to, you know, um, we need to, to preserve that resource for, you know, not just for our children, but you know, for the sake of everybody, <laughs> everybody, you know, we could say that we're just uh, stewards of the land. Uh, I know that's kind of a, a cliche, but but it's true. And um, I think I, that that's one thing I change about about public understanding because it's it's great to see that uh, there's there's so much um, interest amongst the public about you know where their food comes from and how it's produced. You know, that's those are things that people have really taken an interest in lately. Um, but I think maybe there's, there might be, their attention might be um, a little bit misfocused. I would even say manipulated by people who are trying to sell them food that, um, uh, that's, you know, that's labeled as being healthier or, or, or marketed as being healthier or better for the environment when, when really we have um, uh, some other practices that a lot of practices go into producing that food that is is really not sustainable at all and is, is kind of destructive. So um, I'm not sure what the word I think I think there needs to be a new buzzword <laughs> that that people can latch onto and I'm not sure what that that could be. But maybe um, it's regenerative. Regenerative, yeah that uh, that seems to be the 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 next one that's well, that's coming on. To me, it says that sustainable might not cut it anymore. No. We actually have to no. rebuild our resource. And, you know, soil really is on geologic time. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's tough. But I, you know, we have, we have places in our field where, um, well, a lot of our, uh, our ridge tops have been in grass for a very long time. We haven't, haven't been farming those. And, you know, you can, you can see the, the difference in height of the soil for, compared to the stuff that's been in grass and the stuff that's that's been farmed where there's and and even in places there 
we have, you know, the, the strip of grass is wider than it used to be. You know, there's one drop-off where they, where they quit farming and put in more grass, and then there's another drop-off, you know, because the, they saw that, that uh, erosion was, was continuing. So, um, yeah, and, and, you know, for most people, they'll, they'll never see that. You know, they don't get to see the field where their, their food is grown and, and the effect that that has. Yeah, being connected with the agroecosystem, I think, and, and really understanding the complexity, it's a very hard thing to put on a label. There's a lot there. <laughs> Thanks for that as well. Um, all right, let's um, leave off on this last great question. Can you tell me a bit about why do you think more farmers don't experiment more often? I think one reason that farmers don't experiment more often is um, they don't have that many opportunities to, to get things right. You know, you, you look at someone who's, who's uh, been a lifelong farmer, they've maybe had 40, 50 seasons in their, There's in, a book about that, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, in, their, in their whole career to get things to get things right, you know, you're talking about you know, you've got one shot to make your entire year's income for that year, and it's it's a big risk uh, to to experiment. And then um, you've got the combination of weather and market conditions so you could potentially run an experiment and it would work great and then try to replicate it for the next 10 years and it would never work because you just got lucky that one time or you could run an experiment once and it doesn't work and you give up on it but if you would have run it 10 more times it would have worked every time after that so you know there's there's just it, it's so hard to get it right to begin with, and um, I think a lot of farmers don't want to miss their chance. If it just happens to be the one year where you know the combination of the weather and the market, you know, all works together. The conventional way of doing things, this this formula of you know use tillage and pesticides to kill everything, and then plant your crop, and then use pesticides to control. Um, the weeds and disease and, and pests and use fertilizer to supply all the crop nutrition and basically just turn the soil into, you know, a, an inert growing medium that's just there to hold up the roots and, you know, the farmer is supplying everything that the plant needs. That, um, <laughs> that system, it sounds a little dystopian when, <laughs> when you describe it like that, but it works, you know, it, 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 it really works. So when you've got you know so much risk tied up in in your farming process already, um, it's it's hard to turn your back on on something that you know is going to work. Yeah. Well, and you know sometimes one small thing can disturb the equilibrium, especially when it's a bit of a fragile system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and finding that balance. So. Yeah, because I mean most conservation techniques you're relying on organisms of some kind to, to do some work for you. And, and 
they don't always want to work for you. They work for themselves. You know, they might not want to do the things that you want them to do. So it, it could be it could be tricky to to figure out how to how to make those things work. Well, thank you so much. Um, I, and I do think that that maybe is part of um, you know I know from on like the the Cook Research Farm with the the USDA ARS um, LTAR site and um, WSU's work there. One of the things they're looking for is this the kind of long-term resilience in the system, and you know, so that maybe it's not just the right conditions. You know, mm-hmm. there is more stability in space and mm-hmm. time and, and all of that. So maybe that kind of you know, this trying things and, and learning between the farming and research community can can build. Yeah, I think a there's there's an excellent uh, synergy there because yeah, the the you know, the commercial farmers, we can't do a lot of those long-term experiments to answer those really important questions that, that the research uh, universities and research facilities can. So, you know, I'm always looking at um, the publications from WSU and, and U of I and, and other places because, um, you know, I've, I've got questions about things that I want to try, and a lot of the time you guys have already uh, <laughs> started to to answer those questions and then there's there's sort of that tricky tricky bridge where you you know you you read some some research uh publication that has like some some promising insights some sort of like tantalizing results but then as a farmer you're always thinking yeah but will it work here and it's it's it can be it can be tricky to take that leap of faith. Usually, usually you're waiting for your neighbor to try it first. <laughs> then, then once your neighbor does it, you're like, okay, let's do it. Or, or just the right podcast episode yeah, to yeah, listen maybe to. That, maybe that too. <laughs> no, yeah. um, well, that's really great. And uh, yeah, it sounds like some, maybe there's that's part of the inspiration for trying things, mm-hmm. right? You know, for whether sure. that's on a small scale um, on your farm mm-hmm. or or a larger scale. But thank you so much for um, your willingness to share your experiences it's been really great to visit with you during this time and your farm is just gorgeous thanks again all right thank you for having me it was great as always a big thank you to our guests today for sharing their wealth of knowledge and experience with us this podcast is produced by the pnw farmers network team with music credit to carlos flores The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers alone and do not represent that of the PNW Farmers Network or any associated agencies. Please remember that experimental results will vary and listeners are encouraged to try things at home. If you like what you heard, please support this work by sharing, rating, and reviewing. And do consider joining us as a guest or nominating a friend who is trying things on their farm. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, happy trials.